Welcome to Crashing the War Party. Once again, I'm joined by my indefatigable colleague from the Quincy Institute, Kelly Vlahos, as we try to challenge the groupthink and reflexive hawkishness of the foreign policy blob. This week, we'll be joined in our next segment by Christopher Fettweiss, professor of political science at Tulane University, to talk about his new book, The Pursuit of Dominance, 2,000 Years of Superpower Grand Strategy. Before we get to that, let's catch up on some of the latest developments in the war in Ukraine and in the debate over U.S. and allied backing for Ukraine taking place in America and Europe. Last week, President Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met and reaffirmed their commitment to Ukraine and to punishing Russia for its war. The Chancellor said that the Allies would continue backing Ukraine as long as it takes and as long as is necessary. For all their talk of solidarity, it is still the U.S. that continues to do the heavy lifting with respect to providing for both Ukraine and Europe's defense. Despite Germany's previous promises of increasing its own military spending in response to the war, the German government seems to be backtracking and committing to fairly modest outlays in the future. The much-discussed Zeitenwende, or turning point, has not yet really arrived. There are also some dissenting voices in the U.S. that question what the goal of U.S. and Allied strategy should be. In an essay in the New York Times last week, Thomas Meany argued that complete victory for Ukraine, find as the retaking of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, is not possible without direct Western intervention, and therefore Ukraine will have to settle for something less than that. Meany calls attention to the divergence of Western and Ukrainian interests and mentions the possibility that Ukraine might be compensated for territorial losses by gaining EU membership. Meanwhile, in the war itself, Ukrainian forces are digging in and reinforcing their defenses around Bakhmut in preparation for renewed Russian assaults to try to take it. The Russian effort to take the city has been going on for months, so far without success, and the Ukrainian government seems determined to hold on to the devastated city uh, no matter what. And most recently, we had an interesting report coming out from the New York Times this week uh, saying that U.S. officials have said that an unnamed pro-Ukrainian group may be responsible for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines last year. But the officials didn't say very much about this group uh, or who was behind it, and they couldn't even guarantee that it was made up of Ukrainian or Russian nationals or some combination of the two. Uh, so let's take that last story first. Kelly, what do you make of this latest claim about a pro-Ukrainian group being responsible for the sabotage. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tack to it. And, and given that this story just came out uh, today, we're recording on Tuesday. I, I can't speak for what's going to happen over the next 48 hours before this show is published. Um, but I'm going to take a different tack. There was a piece uh, or a very well-reported article on Jack Murphy's Substack. Jack Murphy is a veteran, a veteran special forces. He's a journalist. He is um, pretty serious, quite professional. He published on his Substack, I believe, on December the 24th of 2022, a very lengthy story about saboteurs in Russia, pro-Ukrainian saboteurs in Russia that had been basically trained and fielded by CIA um, through a another partner country. So the, thing, the direct fingerprints of the CIA were not on these saboteurs, but they had been they had been resourcing through another NATO country that had been unnamed these cells, these saboteur cells that were conducting operations in Russia. Uh, explosions, fires since the invasion in 2022, the cells themselves have been put together as far back as 2014 after uh, the annexation of Crimea. That's the first thing that I thought of. Now, the second thing is, okay, the United States is trying to find a way to get uh, to discredit 
Cy Hirsch's reporting on this, which the reporting was that it was United States um, officials that had set this sabotage into motion through U.S. Navy uh, diver, an expert diver team that had been responsible for the explosions of the Nord Stream 2, uh, the Nord Stream pipelines. But so, you know, most likely this is some sort of deflection, but I wouldn't discount <laughs> entirely this idea that maybe there were sabots, pro-Ukrainian saboteurs. It's just that we still were responsible for it <laughs> because I, I have not seen Jack Murphy's um very well reported article on this uh, discredited or responded to in the in the mainstream media. The mainstream media didn't touch it. I've had com- personal conversations with Jack Murphy on this particular story, and I know that he has several very deep sourcing sources on this who came to him. So it's no joke that that the CIA might be behind these um, saboteur groups. So that may, might just be a separate story that this is going on and the mainstream media is ignoring it. Or there might be something to a story that we used other people to uh, break up these these pipelines. So I, I really don't know what to say other than that. But I, I feel like that there might be some more fire there or where there's smoke. Right, well, it's interesting that they, they're coming out with it now that they – for for many months, uh, since the the pipelines were destroyed, I think in September, uh, there there has been this uh, general uh, shrugging coming from from the government as, as to what happened. Uh, essentially, sort of hinting that well, maybe the Russians did it, but we don't really know. And and then now they're coming out with this information that that they do have a, a clearer idea, or at least some idea of who it might be. Uh, it suggests to me that they. They're either finally willing to to come out with it because it it's no longer as uh, maybe as controversial of an issue as it was when it first happened, and so maybe they, they're hoping people won't pay attention to it now, or it could be that they're uh, they're now prepared to acknowledge that yes, there are some pro-Ukrainian forces out there doing things like this. Uh, you know whether it's it's with their cooperation or not. Uh, and it's it's an it's it's interesting to me that this is now finally coming out after Ukraine has gotten a lot of the the military assistance that it was asking for over the last few months, uh, but it didn't come out before that because I think if it had come out before, uh, it, it could have complicated efforts to get German support uh, for those tanks to be released to Ukraine because obviously if if the implication is correct, then this group. Whether it's working directly for the Ukrainian government or not, is it certainly acting in the interests of what it perceives to be Ukrainian cause? And so it's it's potentially bad news for Ukraine and Europe if they're in any way implicated in destroying a civilian pipeline, which, of course, would be very embarrassing for both Germany and and for the U.S. and for Ukraine. Yeah, and I mean, did the Jack Murphy story about saboteurs aside. I mean, in all the conversations that I've heard and had on this Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosion since it happened in September, they've invariably revolved around this idea that it would be a serious technological challenge 
uh, involving lots of skill and timing uh, and acumen to pull this off, and that only a few state actors could actually have the ability to do this. So I think the first reaction that I heard when this story dropped by the New York Times was, give me a break, some some rogue pro-Ukrainian group just went out there and did it on their own. That seems highly unlikely. So this, the next step is like, okay, well, who was helping them? Even if it was the Ukrainian government that was helping them, I have not heard the, that Ukraine being in, uh, included in that small handful of countries that could have pulled this off. That small handful being the United States, Russia, possibly the UK with, with help from the US. But UK pulling this off by itself without US assistance, it just seems unlikely. Right. And, uh, and well, obviously we'll learn more as, as the story develops, as, uh, people dig into it more. Uh, but it's, it, well, one thing I will say for the story is that at least the motivation makes sense for mm. this story. Whereas with the, with the original claims that the Russians had done it to themselves never made any sense to me. And I think it didn't make any sense to most people. Uh, and so the, the idea that the Ukrainians would in some way be behind it cracks because they've been extremely hostile to the Nord Stream pipelines for years. They were they were lobbying against them. They wanted sanctions imposed by the U.S. Uh, they they've been fiercely opposed to right. the, the, their existence, and so it it makes a lot more sense that somebody like that would be interested in getting rid of them uh, than the Russians in destroying their own property uh, and their their own project. Uh, so so that's that's uh, worth noting. Right. Uh, tur- turning back to the war itself. It is the question. Right. Uh, turn, turning back to the war itself, uh, we see that you see this grinding battle around Bakhmut. Uh, Russians are, are just throwing their people into it, into the meat grinder, relentlessly, uh, suffering serious casualties in the process. Uh, of course, the Ukrainians are also losing lots of people on their side uh, as right. as they're subjected to these these attacks, wave after wave. Um, how long do you think U.S. and European allies can keep up? Their current level of support, um, as the war seems to drag on in this this brutal fashion, uh, for many, uh, possibly many more years under these conditions. It seems to me that you know everybody's working at cross purposes here, and with Zelensky, it seems to be pushing for the long game. And in the newspapers on Tuesday morning, he was saying that they will continue to fight in Bakhmut. That's about 24 hours after there was some signaling that they were going to pull out. So now there's been actually um, an entrenchment, like like for real, there by by the Ukrainian military, with some idea that they will be able to hold out until the spring when a lot of these Western weapons come, and then they can get, engage in some sort of counteroffensive. Um, we're also hearing from Washington voices who feel like that is possible. I think there is some tension between those voices and a growing chorus in Washington that is saying this war is not going to be won outright and that a lot of these weapons aren't going to get there by spring. It might be months and months before these weapons get there. 
And who suffers the most? At this point, it's Ukraine because they don't have the numbers that Russia has. I am tired of reading the mainstream media here in Washington uh, quoting the Institute for the Study of War uh, over and over again, saying that they know how many uh, Russians have been lost. They know how many weapons have been destroyed on the Russian side, but we never hear the casualty figures for Ukraine and the number of weapons that have been destroyed on the Ukraine side. There seems to be this given that Ukraine is losing Bakhmut, but somehow it's Russia that's suffering the most. And that, to me, has no logic to it. There's a half a story. There's half the story missing here. And I think as Americans, we need the full story before we can make these serious decisions about how much more money and how much more advanced weapons we might be pouring into this. And without the information and by only getting one side that's been spun up by the Ukrainian ministry and the British ministry and the mainstream media, as Americans, we don't have a real strong sense of where our interest lies and what, what we should do next. I think Zelensky knows what he wants to do next, but his interests are diverging from ours at this point. And I guess uh, we'll see which side American policymakers, the Biden administration falls, I guess, in, in the coming days and weeks. I don't know. Right. And that brings us back to the, the mini essay that I mentioned in the opening remarks. Uh, and and he, he was very explicit in, in drawing uh, a clear line between what's in U.S. and Western interests and what's in Ukrainian interests. And, and the two are diverging quite widely, especially over uh, war aims. It's, it's understandable the Ukrainian government has the goal of re recapturing all territory that the Russians have taken from them um, ever since 2014. I, I, I can see what, why the the political pressure for that uh, is is very strong inside Ukraine, uh, but that is not an objective that the U.S. is bound to share. And indeed, it doesn't make sense for the U.S. to share that objective. Uh, as the U.S. and its allies are committed to backing Ukraine indefinitely, uh, do you think they're ever going to press Ukraine to revise its objectives uh, with respect to Crimea? Do I think that? Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like there's this tension within the Biden administration to this day. And I know we've been saying the same thing for months. There seems to be, uh, you know, on one hand, you have General Mark Milley out there saying, Hey, Ukraine, we need to wrap this thing up. You're in a, the best position you're going to be in. And this war is not going to be run, won, won militarily. And then two days later, you hear something out of uh, Blinken's office, uh, wagging a finger and uh, Biden going to Poland saying we're, we're in it for as long as it takes. Now, is that tension real? Is it, is it being worked out? Um, I, I, I just don't know. And it, it's, it's hard to get a real sense of what, the U.S. strategy is right now coming out of the White House. Yeah, no, I, no, I agree. And when they say as long as it takes, they, they are very reluctant to define what it is. They, they, won't, they won't actually set a specific goal because uh, they're, they're worried about disappointing the Ukrainians or angering some of the members of NATO or angering people back in Washington. Um, I think it, it's doing a disservice uh, to everyone not to be clear about what it is we're actually prepared to do and what we're not prepared to do. And that's, that's something that needs to be, get fixed uh, this year uh, pretty quickly.
Our guest today is Christopher Fettweiss. He is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tulane University. He is the author of Psychology of a Superpower, The Pathologies of Power, and most recently, The Pursuit of Dominance, 2,000 Years of Superpower Grand Strategy. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, I I enjoyed the book very much and uh, looking forward to talking about it. Uh, uh, In that book, Pursuit of Dominance, uh, you conduct a study of how predominant powers of their time uh, across thousands of years of history made and executed their grand strategies. Uh, Beginning with the Roman Empire, you also cover uh, the Tang Dynasty in China, the Mongols, and then the Ottoman, Spanish, and British empires as your examples. Um, How did you come up with this project, and how did you select the examples that you use in the book? Well, I've been teaching this or something similar to this for a long time. Uh, it's, it was based on a class that's still taught at the Naval War College, where I taught for a little while. Uh, the Stansfield Turner, former head of the CIA, uh, went to the was, before that was at the War, Naval War College, and he put together a class that that looks at the past and takes episodes of history to try to inform today's strategies. And uh, because it was during the Cold War, he looked at you know, Thucydides and a lot of air. Er, bipolar eras, or and they also looked at the Prussians, and cases that didn't seem to me to be terribly relevant for, for a unipolar or, or era. We can talk about whether that's the case still, but I, I kind of think so. But it didn't really, it didn't really capture some of the the uh, in, issues of importance to the United States today. So what I've been teaching for years is looking at dominant powers, powers that were the biggest in their at their time, and how did they stay that way? What did they do wrong? It, it, one of the things about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. grand strategy debates, everybody pretty much, pretty much wants the United States to stay number one. Uh, and it's just the different routes of how to get there. People who are in the restrained camp think if we do less, we'll stay more powerful. We won't waste our energy and time and, we'll act, and it'll be a better way. To, and of course, the, the opposite side of the interventionists want, think the route to dumb, remaining best is uh, is through uh, more spending and more active active uh, uh, foreign policy. How important is it to stay number one? Was the question that I always stay for me. How, how, is it really going to affect us if we're number two? Would the U.S. public put up with being number two? Would we get big foam hands that have twos on them rather than one? Could we do it? Um, and so I looked at the Romans and the, the Mongols and the British Empire and how did what did they do wrong? How did they stay number one for so long? Did it help them? Were they safer after they, were they less safe, I should say, when they declined? Was it really bad? People like the Spanish, by every account, the the Spanish people were better off having jettisoned their empire. They're richer, they're they're safer. So, so, you know, how important is it to remain number one? And if if we want to, how do you, how best to do it? So that was the, that's why I got interested in this. And it was a heck of a lot of fun. To write, I tried to write it for a broader audience, which is usually dead, because it, it, then you please nobody. But it was it was fun to write, and I hope it's fun to read. Although you know, who knows? That's in the eye of the beholder, that's for sure. Oh, well, I, I thought it was uh, pretty fun to read. So, uh, oh, you have I, to say that though. You, you'd say that to uh, all sure, your guests. You've never sure, had a sure, person but, on who said this book was garbage. <laughs> but uh, but it really is. Uh, it really was enjoyable. Um, one of the recurring themes that kept coming up in each chapter is how the dominant powers often would make a mistake of overextending themselves and wasting resources and lives on unnecessary conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, this hastened the ruin of their empires, uh, as it did in the Spanish case. Um, is there something inherent in being a dominant power that leads them to make these same self-destructive errors uh, or, or 
What, what, what accounts for that? Yeah, it's a big problem that dominant powers have because when your power expands, so do your interests. Suddenly, the British were thinking their interests were along the Nile Delta, and they had to fight in the Nile Delta. The United States today, just recently this weekend, is reading a New York Times piece where they said it was making a case that if the, the Chinese were to invade Taiwan, they would start puncturing holes in our defensive line in the Pacific. What are we talking about? It's the case always that when your power expands, so do your interests. And keeping that restrained, it leads to wiser policies. My favorite example is the Ottomans. The Ottomans, generally speaking, didn't extend more than they could march from Constantinople in a season. Um, basically 600 miles around Constantinople, partially because they didn't trust their generals and they got too far out. But partially, they, they just thought that's what they needed to be safe. And it extended a little further at sea because they could, they could uh, dominate further. But they didn't try to put together a foreign policy that would extend into Europe. All these people worried that uh, they had to be stopped at Vienna. And no, they didn't. They didn't. They, that was right on the edge of where they wanted to expand. And so they put constraints on themselves. And as a result, lasted their empire and the most fractious. I don't know if you've noticed, that's a pretty excitable part of the world. They dominated her for 500 years. And it was it was a, a tremendously successful grand strategy because they put limits on themselves. One of the other things that uh, keeps coming up is the the preoccupation that great the dominant powers have with their reputation. Uh, yes. you, you observe at one point in the uh, in the book that reputational concerns always counsel belligerence and discourage compromise, and we see that again today in invocations of credibility that lead to more aggressive policies. Uh, why do dominant powers worry so much about reputation and credibility when they're already quite secure? And when we know from, from the scholarship that states don't make decisions based on the dominant state's reputation. Yeah, I wish I could answer that. I wish I knew why reputation becomes so important. And it's important for every state to some degree. And it, it, But it, logic would tell you maybe it would be more important for the smaller states because if they have a reputation for belligerence, maybe that could prevent countries from messing with them. But once you get to be on top, the, the, the perception is that the perception out there of our power is as important as our power. And sometimes it's true. The Romans didn't have nearly enough troops to dominate the region that they did. So they dominated through fear and wanted every barbarian, as they saw them, not there to know that if they were to mess with the Romans, even if it takes a while, they're not they're going to they're going to pay. But today we don't have that kind. We don't, there are no Goths waiting at the doors. There are no Vandals that are going to be swooping down into, into uh, the West Coast. We, but we still obsess over the, the perception of our power. And I, don't, I think that's something that goes hand in hand with, uh, with great power. And if it's not kept in check, and there's no sign it's going to be kept in check. I know you write about it all the time, about how, how, how much nonsense worrying about credibility is. And I've written about it many times. It doesn't make any difference. People are still, they're still going to talk about Munich. They're still going to talk about appeasement. It's never, no matter how often that's beaten down, it's going to come back. It's the vampire, the zombie of, of, of ideas in our, in our security community. It doesn't make any difference. They're always going to worry about it. It has something to do with our power, but that's something, something probably to human nature, too. That we just, we, we're very concerned about what other people think of us, whether we're countries or just individuals. Let me, I want to ask a quick question, Chris. Thanks for coming on, on the issue of credibility. I feel like, and I, and I agree with everything that Dan has written about this obsession with mm -hmm. credibility. Let's look at it like the, the credibility itself. 
Did the United States lose credibility during the global war on terror and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan since we're going to be uh, witnessing the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war invasion this month? Um, did we lose credibility for real? And has that impacted the way that, let's just say, the global South and other countries in the world outside of our core NATO partners uh, during this period of global, you call it great power conflict in Europe? That's such a great question. And the way you worded it is perfect because credibility for good decision making is never as important as credibility for belligerence. Uh, and credibility means so many different things to different people. And of course, we should have lost a lot of credibility for our wisdom, but nobody cares about that. When, they all, when people talk about credibility, they're always talking about what, our, our willingness to fight mm-hmm. and our willingness to keep on fighting until the matter is, is resolved in some way. Our the reputation for good judgment is never as important as our reputation to be willing to fight. And that's what all people are always talking about when they talk about credibility. They worry about, our, I imagine in, our, in the blob, which I, you know, I'd love to talk, talk about there, but the security community, they worry much more about the damage to our credibility by the, from the, the uh, leaving Afghanistan, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, than they do with the Iraq war because they don't really care about our re- credibility, our, our reputation for wisdom. It's the reputation for belligerence. And because the, the, the idea is the reputation for belligerence will affect the way other countries approach us. If they think we're going to fight for any reason, they won't mess with us and we'll get our, 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 our goals accomplished. Not because we're going to make good judgment. Nobody, it's depressing. Nobody cares yeah. about that. <laughs> I think that's did. the word, depressing, because when you think about it, we, are, we did not accomplish our goals in Afghanistan, the Taliban is now running the country, mm-hmm. and it, even the even the the seemingly most obvious goals of liberating a country from autocratic rule has has gone by the the wayside. And in in Iraq, I, I feel like that we left that country in shambles. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein isn't running it still, but you still have a a a less than ideal governing situation there to say the least <laughs> but You're as right. you say maybe that's not what people are looking at or, 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 or nations yeah. looking yeah. at when, when they think of credibility they're looking at our willingness to go fight another war exactly um, right i mean are we safer now that saddam hussein is gone are we safer that the taliban you know after spending 15 years in afghanistan Nobody seems to care much about that. Plus, people don't want to look backwards. They don't want to admit things went wrong. As much as we're going to be talking about the 20th anniversary of Iraq, there's going to be a lot of people, there'll be people defending it. There'll be people, well, we've meant well, because it's hard to admit we did something wrong, whoever we are. And it's, uh, it's so it, it's, it's depressing because you know, I don't, you don't really see a lot of learning. We should have lessons that we learned from Iraq. And I think the restraint community grew a lot because of Iraq. Sometimes you have to have an incredibly stupid, immoral, a strategic notion, action to inspire better ideas. But did we, did, are we going to be better in the future? Are we going to make better decisions? Uh, you know, are we going to avoid a war with Iran? I don't know. Uh, have we really learned anything? Which I think, you know, becoming sour, which maybe is why I'd rather think about the Mongols than the than U.S. foreign policy, because otherwise it gets depressing. Yeah. Well, you, you recently published an article in Orbis mm-hmm. in which you were seeking to define 
the foreign policy blob. Mm -hmm. And um, you say the conventional wisdom of U.S. foreign policy has at its core a set of widely held un underexamined beliefs. Together, these notions constitute the essence of what has become tendentiously known as the blob or the official mind of U.S. Mm -hmm. national security. The blob is a mindset, not a group of individuals based yeah. on a few basic assumptions about the world and U.S. place in it. Without forcing you to go through all of them, can you talk a little bit about these widely held beliefs and whether or not they are unproductively or productively informing the way Washington is formulating and supporting policy in Ukraine today? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right that uh, beliefs become so sometimes they become so widespread that we don't question them anymore. Every, if everybody believes it, then it's got to be true. Like we were talking about credibility. If everybody believes it's important to remain credible, then it's got to be true because everybody seems that no one examines it. Uh, the British had the same kind of official mind. They're, they're agents around the world. They, had, they, they trusted them because they were all educated in the same places, had the same ideas, and they could make the same decisions based on the same set of beliefs. We have that same thing now. We have a set of beliefs that people in our foreign policy community take for granted and don't think about much. And I think a lot of what Dan writes, what I write, totally, perhaps pointlessly, asking them to examine those beliefs. Is it really true, for instance, that security and spending are related? That if we keep, the more we spend, the safer we are. It doesn't seem to me to be accurate, but there's a tendency to believe that if we, do, if we don't spend as much, if we don't spend... 20 times what Putin spends, then we're going to be we're going to be in, in danger. Or is it, is it really true that uh, we that we're the only voice for good in the world that we have to be that if, if we don't promote justice and and freedom everywhere, that justice and freedom will evaporate? Or is it you know, these things that we tend to take for granted uh, that the underlying assumptions in U.S. foreign policy sometimes are underlying assumptions for good reasons? They're right. But sometimes they are might be underexamined or overtaken by events. Because what was if there's one thing that I've sort of the theme of the book that I wrote is that history and the norms and ideas change. What worked for the Romans is not going to work for us. And maybe the Romans they figured out a way to have an empire on the cheap for a long time, but they used tools that are not available to and wouldn't work for us. So, and but the blob stays the same. It takes a little, it takes because nobody examines those beliefs. They don't change over time. Uh, we live in we're an incredibly safe country, but we you wouldn't know it if you go to security conferences like we all have over time. They, they, how, what are the threats and what are they? What are the dangers? We're, nobody ever stops and says, "Wow, thank goodness we're living in the 21st century, a relatively peaceful era where we're incredibly safe," because nobody believes it. we believe there's danger everywhere. So there's this shared belief that we all have that are underexamined, or they're, they're not we all have that security community has the blob, which I love. You know, I know people in the blob hate it, but they if you're it's more a set of beliefs than it is uh, individuals. It seems to me. How how are how is the Washington policy establishment hewing to those beliefs on the Ukraine issue, and is it hurting? our ability to see things for the way they really are. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, you're probably right. Because it, if we see this as a big contest of good versus evil, 
if we see freedom at stake in the in who runs Crimea, then we're losing touch with U.S. interests here. Uh, I think, generally speaking, uh, uh, through their actions, maybe more than what they say, the Biden administration understands this. Seems to me that they've tried to strike a balance between going over the top uh, and, and seeing this as an existential war and, uh, and, and, and wanting it to not get any bigger. Uh, hopefully it could have it, this could have gotten a lot worse if other people had been in charge. It seems to me that would have seen it more and, and it still can evolve in that direction as good, a big battle of good versus evil. And it's also you can't it's, it's, it's dangerous to listen to the military advisors here because they generally speaking, people in uniform, they want to win first and foremost. And they're going to they don't have the political goals in mind. This is the bigger strategy. They just want to win. So, yeah, granted, we could give we could arm Ukraine to the teeth if we want them to win. But is that really in our interest? Is that what we want? Do we want to keep this thing contained or do we want to win against greater existential evil? Well, you know, once once we start talking about uh, how this is if, if, you know, today, Donbass, tomorrow, the world, that's not what Putin is thinking here. And we don't have to necessarily see this in big cosmic uh, cosmic terms. Just get them both to the eventually they'll get to the negotiating table. They're not there yet. But maybe our job is just to help them along the way. Although, you know, uh, it might be a long winded answer to your question. Well, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, one of the problems that we're we're struggling with uh, in, in the Ukraine debate and, and indeed with, with a lot of our other debates is the, the problem that you identify in the book with U.S. foreign policy, which is the, the lack of limits, the lack of frontiers, mm-hmm. uh, that the U.S. becomes overextended because it doesn't know where to draw a line yeah. and say beyond that line, we don't care what happens uh, it, it, because the U.S. doesn't distinguish between what's vital and what's peripheral. Everything, even things that were peripheral yesterday suddenly become vital uh, right now. Um, so how does the U.S. put its foreign policy on a more solid foundation when we have a political culture that's so hostile to recognizing and accepting limits of U.S. ambitions and power? I, I wish I could tell you. I, I don't know. I wish I wish there was a way because you're exactly right. If we don't then the first step to avoiding overextension is to figuring out where your limits are. And sometimes they're geographical, sometimes they're ideological, but you have to have some way to limit and identify your interests. The Romans eventually figured out exactly it's sort of weird to think that for a couple hundred years they didn't really know where their territory ended they didn't know where the border was they eventually came up with quite clear lines of where the empire ended uh and then and and they tried to do it with where it made geographic sense and and i talked earlier about the ottomans and how they basically 600 miles around constantinople that was their uh, or istanbul the, the city that they, they uh they drew their frontiers we don't have frontiers We'll extend NATO to like a deli across the street from the Kremlin and then decide that that's very important. We have, we have our frontiers extend all the way over to the Chinese, uh, the Chinese border. What are we doing? Why is the first line of defense uh, Taiwan for us rather than say that's a secondary interest? When we don't even, I don't know exactly how to get people to think this way, but I wish, but if people started talking about what our modern frontiers are, our modern limitations, that's the only way you can avoid overextension, because if you don't have limits, if you don't have whether they're geographical or issue based or political, if you don't have any limits at all, you're in big trouble. You're going to spend your way into oblivion. You're going to be the Spanish who have no limits. 
Well, and, and I think we're we're already seeing that. We see that the U.S. is overstretched now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, uh, of course, we have dozens of treaty alliances, but beyond the, the treaty allies, we have uh, many other states that we also treat uh, almost as if they were treaty allies. And, and of course, mm-hmm. Ukraine uh, has become one of these, uh, a country that we have sort of adopted as a as a quasi ally, uh, as some people will call it. Uh, Without any formal obligation to do so, it's it's just something that's happened by uh, uh, almost reflexively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you say in the book, uh, shrinking the radius of American interests may prevent overextension, which remains the biggest long-term threat to predominance. Uh, so, if we're going to shrink that radius of interests, if we're going to draw lines and 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 figure out where the boundaries are, uh, where where if you, if you were to draw on the map. Uh, where would you start, and what commitments would you uh, recommend that the U.S. give up? I would think about. I would start thinking about in terms of it, because when we talk about our interests, for some reason, especially in some contexts, we rarely make distinctions between first, the primary and secondary interests. Even though we, you might, in sort of academic conversations, people talk about what what U.S. interests are at stake in Donbass. I've seen that. I've read about U.S. interests in Crimea. We don't have big interest there. And maybe if we start thinking about gradations of interest or, and, and because, and because the primary interests are the ones you're willing to fight for, presumably, and the lesser ones are the ones that you can use other tools to address. Sanctioning Russia over invading Ukraine makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, fighting Russia over doesn't. Uh, so it, it, the primary interests will be the ones we're willing to fight. Over. Are we willing to fight over Estonia? Do we really want to go to war for Narva? Will we be willing to risk New York? We don't have this conversation anymore because we don't make any gradations in our interests. And our interests go right up to Russia, apparently. And apparently our primary interests are willing to fight for every inch of of Latvia. Okay, but maybe we can a more rational way to discuss it might be that there are certain tools we would use in in some instances and, and, and not in others. And maybe you know, maybe you need to have that threat there to deter old Vlad from giving it another go. Uh, but you might have to back up that threat. And if, and God forbid, we hurt our credibility by making bluffs. So when President Biden says we're going to defend every inch of NATO, if he doesn't do it, the credibility warriors will come out of the woodwork and say you have to, you have to be ready to go to nuclear war for Lithuania. There, there, it's very difficult to imagine less. A, a, a war that would be less connected to U.S. interests. Uh, if, if our interests are everywhere, then they're really nowhere. And if, 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 if we're going to defend every ter- inch of territory, soon everywhere, it seems, anywhere that if somebody says I'm free, uh, I, I would like us to step back a little bit and, and rethink what's really important. And we might come to different conclusions if we had started from zero than if we start from this big infrastructure that we already have, some sort of psychological and political infrastructure everywhere. We don't make gradations, and as a result, our interests extend to every single part of the globe. That's that's how we keep getting ourselves into trouble, uh, as, <laughs> yeah. uh, as we've seen as we've seen in the last 20, 30 years, and and as uh, I'm worried we'll, we'll see in the next decade as well. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, want to thank you, uh, Christopher Fetweiss. Thanks for coming on the show, uh, and uh, check out his book, "The Pursuit of Dominance: Two Thousand Years of Superpower Grand Strategy." Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I think if you, if you enjoy uh, if you enjoy history and if you enjoy thinking about foreign policy uh, with comparative examples, it's it's really great. And uh, so, uh, take a look at it. Thanks a lot for having me on. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Hey, thank you.
Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 